0: This is Salt and Spine
1: understand like food community being in food industry is not always a restaurant there's all different kinds of areas and food that you can go into if cooking isn't your thing
2: there's already been a noticeable change between people from the 90s and the 80s like even stories that my mom and my dad have told me about how little options there were
3: we want young people to be empowered um, and feel as though they can you know fuel themselves their bodies their minds and their spirits in order to fuel and serve their communities.
0: Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine. You're tuning in today for the last chapter in our most recent series, A Food Media Awakening. Now, we held on to this episode from our summer series to instead kick off our fall cookbook season, and we're so thrilled to share some really insightful, moving, and delicious conversations with you in coming months. Tune in later this week as we begin our fall season with cookbook author Christina Gill. And make sure you're subscribed to catch new episodes every Tuesday. Also, make sure you're signed up for our new monthly cookbook club. This month, we're cooking along with Salt and Spine friend, Sunoko Sakai, and her cookbook, Japanese Home Cooking. Make sure to join us on October 28th for a super fun virtual dinner party we're hosting with Sunoko. We've spent the last few months at Salt and Spine producing this Food Media Awakening series, as well as taking a step back, pausing our show periodically, and taking time to reflect. Since I launched Salt and Spine over two years ago now, I've always been intentional about featuring diverse voices, as well as asking our guests to talk about the not-so-great parts of the cookbook in food media industries. And I don't just say that as a signifier, but rather as an acknowledgement that even with such intentions clearly baked into our show's DNA right from the beginning, we're no exceptional model. We have lots of room to grow, and we appreciate you taking the time to step back with us and to have conversations about equity and representation privately, internally, and publicly as part of this series that are long overdue and are not going anywhere. And as we're bringing this mini-series to a close this week with some young voices in the food industry, I've also reflected on how this series initially came to be – Back in early June, Tammy Teclamarium tweeted a photo of then-Bon Appetit editor-in-chief Adam Rappaport in brownface. If you recall, he resigned that day, and Bon Appetit has been a turbulent place ever since. Corporate promises fell short. At least eight staff have publicly resigned from the Test Kitchen's video team. Recently, Conde Nast announced new leadership for the publication. Dawn Davis, one of the most prominent Black women in publishing, has taken the helm as top editor. And just last week, Bon Appetit relaunched their YouTube page with a slate of new hosts. But the rest of the food media world hasn't been quiet either. LA Times food editor Peter Meehan is out, as you recall, after disturbing allegations became public about his behavior inside and outside the office. Since we put out our last episode, the James Beard Awards have been called off amid reports that there were no Black people chosen as winners this year. And that's just a few examples. And that's just to say a lot has happened. Like, a lot. A A lot in just a couple short months during a global pandemic when a lot is already happening. If you work in food media, if you read food media, if you're following this news, you might be exhausted. I have been, but I'm also continuing to stay hopeful, as I believe many of you are, about what progress lies ahead. And I hope you're ready to help create it. That brings us to today's episode. We thought the best way to close this series on a food media awakening would be to hear from some voices of the next generation of food writers and chefs. So Salt and Spine producer Madeline Forbes and I called up a few young people who are already making waves and building reputations in the food industry to hear more about what drew them to working in food, as well as in their minds what's on the horizon for our industries. Let's start first at my conversation with Rohana Bizarret-Martinez, a 16-year-old chef from Oakland, California, whose resume is already filling up with stages at places like Chez Panisse Cafe, Nina Compton's New Orleans restaurant, Compare La Pen, and more. Rahana first started cooking when she was just six years old.
1: I love cooking with my family. We cook a lot. We are always in nature, so I like to go to like the farmer's markets and just like be in different like nature areas. So I was always learning about plants and other vegetables and fruits and things like that. So that really kind of started my liking of like ingredients. And I've been cooking since then. But professionally, I've been cooking for the past three years.
0: Up until the past three years, you were sort of teaching yourself. Is that right?
1: So I was learning from my family, and then I was teaching kind of myself. I'd watch, you know, those super kind of iconic cooking shows, and then I would read cookbooks. And I never went to any like cooking classes or anything like that. I just learned from my family and then doing other research on my own, reading and watching videos.
0: As a young person, Rohana says she's learned a lot from studying how others have paved their own way in the culinary world.
1: Yeah, there are definitely certain idols in the cooking industry that I was so, I would say, inspired by when I was younger. Definitely Leah Chase. She was so awesome. And I I was inspired by her from such a young age because she was kind of the inspiration of Princess and the Frog. And I right. I mean, at the time, I didn't know that, but I kind of see how as I got older, that's definitely something that, that I was able to see in kind of food Culture that I was like, oh yeah, that is awesome. I can open my own restaurant too.
0: And you, you got to meet her a while back, right?
1: Yeah, it was summer of the last two years or two years ago, and I got to meet her. She was so awesome, and the food there is great, as everyone knows. <laughs> and yes. she's was such a kind person, and she offered a lot of great advice that I'm
0: really grateful for. And so the past few years, the past three years now, you've stodged in a lot of restaurants. Is that right? Yeah.
1: So I've been stodging at for the past three years, kind of at different restaurants. Locally, I've been to like Chez Panisse and Mr. Jew's and Californios. And I've been really kind of really honored to be able to be in those spaces and learn from those awesome teams and chefs.
0: Are there things that you have learned in the past few years about the food industry from being able to actually be in the kitchens and working alongside other chefs?
1: Yeah. So something that I kind of learned over the years about the food industry from being in it before when I just wanted to cook, I really didn't know anything about it besides I like food. And so being able to be in kitchens and restaurants, it really kind of showed me how, how much prep goes into feeding people and um, getting to dinner service and all of those just little tricks that come up about kind of preparing food for the day and everything like that.
0: And, and you, you thrive on that? You like that high stakes environment?
1: Yeah, it's a lot of yeah. fun for me. Um, cooking was always something that I found really calming and it was really exciting to do. And so then when I got into like more professional kitchens and I was able to like work uh, service and different things like that, it was like really exciting. And so I really like that kind of kitchen atmosphere, kind of like the fast paced environment, but also just the, the casual kind of environment that cooking brings.
0: I asked Rahana about equity in the food media industry. As a teenager, she's already outspoken on such topics. Over the summer, she took to her Instagram to call out the Los Angeles Times' food section for failing to, quote, celebrate the Black lives that created LA food community. She later talked with the paper's restaurant critic for a published piece about what changes she'd like to see in food media writ large.
1: I think there's a lot of Black, Indigenous, people of color food writers and just people in feud community and they have their own entire network and their own kind of areas where they put their work towards and I feel like in mainstream that can be showcased more so you know these writers are already out here they're always already like doing really awesome work and it needs to be kind of showcased more on the front screen if that's something that these amazing writers want to do
0: do you think it's a generational thing? do you think that we've gone from older generations that have been sort of more, you know, frankly, white men have had more power in yeah. restaurants and in publishing and that's sort of evolving and shifting. Do you think we're gonna see another big um shift with the next generation?
1: Yeah, so for the next generation, I feel like the past few generations have really been doing a lot of awesome work in food. And I really see those generations kind of being more open to all different types of food cuisines and different things like that. For kind of the next generation, my generation, I see a lot of people cooking kind of regionally and global ingredients. And that's something that I like to do and is really kind of important to me is to showcase all different types of food and write about all different types of food so people can really learn more than the set, maybe five cuisines that are often talked about or learned.
0: And for Rahana, food is still very personal.
1: Yeah, so I definitely think food is really um, personal to I live in California. There's a big, there's lots of different food communities here. So I kind of grew up with availability to different types of cuisines and being able to eat at those restaurants or just getting different types of produce at farmer's markets, which is something that I really, really appreciate. And then being Mexican and black, I'm always kind of pulling from those inspirations in my family. And so it definitely comes through in my recipes, uh, kind of taking in my family and then also where I live.
0: You mentioned reading cookbooks as one way yeah. to prepare yourself. Do you have favorite cookbooks that you cookbook? that have been really important to you? Yeah.
1: I do have a few favorite cookbooks. I think that my two of my favorites that I've gotten over the past few years has definitely been Bright Terry's Vegetable Kingdom that just came out. Yeah and um, Julia Tertian's Now Again. Those who have been yeah. my favorites, I am always buying cookbooks and always like reading cookbooks. So I have like monthly favorites all the time. So I I, I am always looking through different cookbooks. So
0: yeah, I, I feel that I'm the same yeah. way. I have monthly favorites too. <laughs> I like that phrase. Do you see yourself ever writing a cookbook one day?
1: Yeah, I definitely see myself writing a cookbook one day. Um, that whole community is super interesting, and I see that there's a lot of space for more. POC food writers and cookbook authors. So it's definitely something that I'm interested in and also supporting other um, upcoming cookbooks.
0: I asked Rahana what advice she might offer to others who might want to follow in her footsteps.
1: Yeah, so my message to kind of other young people who want to get started in the food industry or just um, are really interested in the food industry is to really kind of really study about different food cultures and really try and eat and cook as much as you as you can and understand like food community being in food industry is not always a restaurant so maybe if you you love food but you you maybe not the best cook you can always be a food writer or you can be a you know there's all different kinds of areas in food that you can go into if cooking isn't your thing but i think kind of read cookbooks and learn more about food, so that you, when you have an opportunity to kind of start in food industry, you already kind of know know a lot about the kind of industry and are seen as someone who is very well prepared.
0: That's my conversation with Oakland-based chef Rahana Bizarret Martinez. Now, next up, Salt and Spine producer Madeline Forbes called another up-and-coming voice in food media. Haley Thomas, who in July published her first cookbook titled Living Lively, 80 Plant-Based Recipes to Activate Your Power and Feed Your Potential. Here's Madeline in conversation with Haley Thomas.
4: Hi, Haley. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us on Salt and Spine today. We're excited to chat with you kind of about the future of food. So for this episode, as you know, we wanted to hear from young folks in the food industry, such as yourself, to get some insight and perspective on how you see the food landscape today, particularly within the context of activism and food media. Since you're a food activist, uh, you know where did food begin for you? And ultimately, how did those first moments of knowing you were going to be highly involved with food shape your trajectory of getting into veganism and health activism?
3: Yeah. um, Well, I've always been super interested in food and that's just kind of in my blood, I believe, because both of my parents are from Jamaica. And so food is a huge part of our culture and growing up, like instead of wanting, you know, mac and cheese or chicken nuggets, like I wanted mm-hmm. to have oxtail and curry goat and jerk <laughs> chicken and all of those things. And so Amazing. I've always kind of, you know, had an adventurous um, mindset when it comes to food and just really being involved in cooking and helping my mom and just to learn about the whole process. Like our favorite thing to do is watch like Food Network together. And I was, you know, five or, or six years old at the time. So totally. um, just, I've always been, you know, in, Involved in food. And for me, really the evolution of it um, started when my dad was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes when I was eight years old. And so with this diagnosis, you know, it forced our family to really think of. Food outside of this kind of general box that you uh, usually look at it through, which is just like this tastes good or this doesn't taste good, and you know this mm-hmm. is easy to make or this is time consuming. Like that's really um, how we viewed food, and I know you know many of us just kind of eat because it's a necessity and don't really think about it much afterwards. And so that's where we were at. And when my dad was diagnosed, you know he was prescribed medication that was horrible and had you know side effects that sounded like it would only lead to uh, more. Chronic illnesses or even death, and just health complications that weren't really worth it. So, Mm -hmm. um, my parents just decided to look into alternatives, and we found that food could potentially, you know, heal or you know reverse this condition. And so, we kind of just took a leap of faith into that direction, and quickly learned about the power of food. And through this process of trying to heal my dad, um, you know, me, my little sister, and all of our family were just like on the couch watching food documentaries and um, reading books together on nutrition and. And then applying everything we're learning in the kitchen and so it was just a very um even though it was a scary time it was a fun experience at least for me like I was a kid of course but um you know the involvement in which you know me and my sister really had it was unbelievable and, and something that mm-hmm. I hadn't really experienced before um in any other environment in school you know I wasn't necessarily learning about nutrition at all, even though I yeah. had a PE class. We just like learned how to run around and, you know, exercise was kind of the only definition of, of health. That's what defined health um, for me. And so learning mm-hmm. about the food aspect just really opened up my world and allowed me to understand kind of how I could take the things that I loved in my culture and, and combine it with mm-hmm. healthier ingredients. And so that process, you know, was about a year long of just reimagining You know what, our plates look like, and learning about the food system more. And within that year, we were able to completely reverse my dad's condition without the use of medication. So, that to me, you know, I was nine at that time, then nine or ten. And so, I was blown away by just how powerful food was, and also blown away by the fact that this education was not provided and essential in schools. And so I didn't see, you know, my peers and I didn't have conversations about what we're eating and, and where it comes from or reading food labels, you know, at lunchtime, we're just all kind of eating what our parents give us or or mm-hmm. buying, you know, whatever from the cafeteria. And so I really thought, you know, this conversation is one that we need to have because I feel it's it's almost essential and a birthright for us to know, you know, what we're putting into our bodies and how it impacts us. So that's really what kind of sparked my mind and and started Mm -hmm. helping me just think about how I could maybe make a difference and show up. And so I've been really lucky to have parents who, you know, are very open minded and just follow any kind of idea that me and my sister have and support that family. And so that's really what happened and how I got started. Thanks for sharing. That's uh,
4: really, you know. I want to say unique, but like a lot of people experience this with their parents and within themselves. And Mm -hmm. I can relate to it to a degree. I mean, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness when I was 18. And now a decade later, and living in the States in a Western culture, you know, what you're presented first and foremost is Western medicine. So Mm -hmm. taking a little bit of this, taking a little bit of that. And it's like, you know, you just listen because as a lot of young people do, you don't know any different. You don't know, you know, what other options you have. You don't know that you can ask questions about like Mm -hmm. what could be available to you. And then that's when I did my own self journey on being like, you know, food is really powerful. And I, I see my body just like responding super easily because I have a di- digestive condition. I see my body responding so fast to certain foods, be it mm-hmm. gluten, be it dairy and whatnot. And realizing just like shifting, you know, my nutrition and eating habits like really allowed me to like live a more fruitful, positive life and be able yeah. to ultimately get off medicine. And I think That's Mm -hmm. super cool, especially as a young person, um, being able to vocalize that for people who feel like they can't ask those questions or like don't know where to start into looking for different resources when they're diagnosed with a chronic illness or just they have a food allergy that's severe to some degree. So, and what you were saying in terms of education, uh, so you have your nonprofit, HAPPY, which stands Mm -hmm. for Healthy, Active, Positive, Purposeful Youth. How was that born, essentially? Was it born from the experience you had with your dad and then wanting to fuse food education into our educational structures with young folks? So how did that come to be?
3: I just started to notice more and more that there wasn't really any fun nutrition education available mm-hmm. to kids my age and younger. And I thought like, why not be, be the person who can provide this information and to do it through a peer-to-peer format? Because I know, um, you know, sometimes it can get boring if you yeah. might not be <laughs> able to relate to the person um, giving you the information. So I thought, okay, maybe we're onto something cool here. And so I just like had a brainstorm session with. brainstorm my- my mom and we decided to co-found this organization and we had some support from a community center our local ywca in tucson arizona um okay. where we were before we moved here to new york and so mm-hmm. um we were able to really just test out like different programming and do, you know, happy chef summer camp and a, and a happy chef's little garden camp and be able to test out our programming um, on the weekends through, you know, groups of kids who are kind of already at the YW um, with their parents, like taking classes and they were just there like hanging out. And so we thought, why not use this as an opportunity to really learn from them and grow through this. And so we spent a few years just really doing that, trying to understand the demographic that we were serving because a huge part of our work is ensuring that we're, you know, educating young people and their families who, you know, really (laughs) disproportionately, you know, have um lack of access to this information and to healthy foods in general. And so we wanted to be that entry point um for learning and that exposure. And so we spent, you know, a lot of time just really getting to know our community that way. And um that was really you know Mm eye-opening for me coming from you know a middle class family. <laughs> the, the lack yeah. of inaccessibility. I mean, the inaccessibility is, is truly astonishing mm-hmm. and a, a struggle for sure. And so we wanted to make sure that our messaging was always really sensitive to that and worked, you know, through those issues as well. So it was definitely just a really amazing time learning about all of these things. And we've been really able to To um, expand our messaging and mission throughout these past, you know, seven going on eight years now into a more holistic lens of not only food and nutrition, which of course, you know, are the foundation of our well being, but also, you know, the other aspects of our lives that influence us and create our overall well being, like, you know, our relationships and the ways that we engage with ourselves and others and um, all those things. We're really trying to bring that messaging in as well on self care. In terms of our work, you know, with being in co- close proximity to so many farms, we've been able to, you know, partner with a few to do some cool projects. And even during quarantine, mm-hmm. um, we partnered with Dig In. They have like a farm box um Program that they have. And so we were able to donate some fresh produce boxes with all like local produce to, um, one of the schools that we work with here in New York. So it's, it's been cool to be able to do that. Um, and in terms of our work, you know, we've been able to just make connections with not only many more schools, but also nonprofits that are doing amazing work as well. And that's been really cool to be able to collaborate and kind of bring our, our perspective as well as incorporate the work of others. I think my, you know, biggest intention and... Luckily, it's really remained the same throughout this experience. And it's just kind of the manifestation of that intention has changed. But overall, you know, we want young people to be empowered, um, and feel as though they can, you know, fuel themselves, their bodies, their minds and their spirits in order to fuel and serve their communities. So through that, you know, we've really focused on education and ensuring that this knowledge is accessible in terms of food and wellness. And so, um, for us, what that looks like in terms of expanding is really just being able to have our reach go beyond you know, our day-to-day interactions that we used to have. And so even quarantine um, is a great example of how that kind of online access is really important. So we've been working on finishing up a happy academy that we've been building for a few years now. And basically what it does is pulls together everything that we do in person through summer camps and school tours and makes it um, accessible through like online content and videos and games and things like that. And so through that academy, you know, that's how we see ourselves really expanding beyond, you know, just this country or countries we've worked in, you know, every now and then. Um, and so I think really just utilizing these tools that we have um, online is a big piece of what we want to do for the future and moving forward. And we've even. we've even been like testing that out now we're doing self-care summer camp um this week and we've done some cooking demos with families and students so that's been really fun to just kind of see what the possibilities are through the, you know, virtual world. And I think that's kind of where we're going to see a huge expansion in this education and in a way that is engaging and exciting because you see so many online schools and courses for adults in in regards to cooking or even self-growth. Yeah. Um,
4: So, you know, being a young voice in food is, and especially in food media, what are the challenges that you're facing today? And, And also, what are you excited about to work on and grow uh, within food media and changing that landscape because it's predominantly white. Uh, a lot of these media institutions run by white folks, and we've seen within the last month or so. I mean, we've been seeing this for a long time now, but more so coming to light and more of a broader public audience. People speaking to these power dynamics that are happening in these food media institutions and like uprooting them, changing them, the face to really give people a voice, particularly Black folks, particularly people of color, queer folks, and whatnot. So. Mm-hmm yeah, I'm curious to hear your perspective on that, the challenges that you face personally, and then, you know, what you're excited to see change and shift in the future of food media.
3: For sure. I mean, um, it's been exciting to see these shifts happening and to Mm -hmm. have, you know, the discrimination that so many of us face in this space be acknowledged and not only acknowledged, but also have, you know, action being taken to hopefully, you know, lessen that amount of discrimination that we're seeing. So, that you know is an exciting thing, and I'm I'm looking forward to see like, seeing like what actions are, are taken and really mm-hmm. tangible actions. But um, I think really the biggest challenge that I've faced is just kind of with my age, and I think it's interesting to see it shift as as I get older. Um, you know, when I was mm-hmm. a lot younger, a lot of people would say like you know I can't possibly talk about this thing, or mm-hmm. would you know demean me, or say that I you know need to go like sit down somewhere and, and you know be a fry cook at McDonald's, like all sorts of just really weird comments um, from, from people. And so I've definitely experienced that of just kind of having adults, um, really just kind of look down on the work that I'm doing or Mm -hmm. try to kind of delegitimize it. And I think that, you know, in a way is, is unfortunate for sure. But as I've gotten older, I think it's definitely been really interesting to see that even out over time and, um, you know, I think the thing is that I've really been able to kind of just stay focused on the work that I'm doing. So um, if there aren't any opportunities, you know, being presented to me, I kind of just try to figure out how I can make my own version of that thing. And, you know, that's just kind of how I've been raised by my mom. And my dad is just like, if you don't see it, or it's not happening, like, make it happen. And so that's been a lot of our, our journey. Um, my family and with a nonprofit is just like figuring it out as we go and really trying to Build relationships with allies that can be helpful. So it's been really great to have those people um, show up and and be available to support throughout this journey and even during this time. So any challenges that I've really faced, which have mainly been like just people saying crazy things and and putting me down, um, I've always had that support system to back me up, which has been really nice. But um, in terms of the narrative that's, that's playing out right now and the narrative that's shifting, you know know it's been really beautiful to see that expanding and even not only in terms of representation of, of yeah. individuals but also representation of the interconnected topics with food. You know, not everything is you know a pretty acai bowl or you know yeah. a, a beautiful <laughs> bowl of pasta. It's just not that yeah. simple and, and there's so many different things connected to to food and whether we're talking about you know food apartheid or um, Even, you know, unethical raising of animals and and that whole thing, the environmental pressure that's that's happening through animal agriculture, Um, Mm -hmm. even talking about, you know, just looking at food as the one pillar of health, but really expanding that into mental health as well, being connected and all of the different ways that we nourish ourselves being a part of our overall wellness. So I'm really, really excited to see the conversation just shifting to be um, more holistic and more inclusive of individuals. Visuals and of all the things that kind of get our food to our plates, all the people who, you know, are being treated wrongly and, you know, are not working under fair conditions to get our food on our plates. Um, Just having that conversation at the forefront, talking about ways that we can respect um, cultures and recipes from specific cultures that may not be our own. Like all of those things are really great to see. And to also hear so many different people in the food space of all different backgrounds really sharing their stories being vulnerable being open um, is awesome because I think just this industry is becoming more vulnerable and more genuine and I think through that that's how we're going to have people connect to the food space so much more because we're hearing real stories we're seeing people who look like us and we're looking at the depth of of the food industry and and food media so that's a really great thing, and I, I I know that it'll continue to move in that direction because I feel like there's a lot of accountability now, and um, there's
4: definitely no way we're going back. Well, Haley, thank you so much for sharing your time, your perspective, your voice. Uh, I'm really inspired by the work that you do, and I can't wait to see more of what's to come. So thank for joining you. Us. I
3: appreciate that. Thank you so much.
0: Again, that's cookbook author Haley Thomas talking with Salt and Spine producer Madeline Forbes. Now today's last guest is Michael Stanton. Michael is a student at New York City's Food and Finance High School, a culinary high school for students looking at careers in both restaurants and the food industry. Regular listeners of Salt and Spine might have heard about food and finance in a previous episode where we talked with cookbook author Lazarus Lynch, an alum of the school. Recently, students at Food and Finance High launched a new print magazine, The publication, called Pass the Spatula, features stories of past, present, and future trailblazing chefs of color. Students interviewed chefs like Carla Hall, J.J. Johnson, Padma Lakshmi, and Lazarus Lynch for their debut episode. One of the students leading the project is Michael Stanton, who serves as the magazine's distribution director. I called up Michael to talk about how the magazine idea came to be and his takes on food and food media worlds.
2: In the beginning stages, we... We're all given the choice to come up with a name together as a group, and we kind of made like a like a group chat over social media, and we just kind of blurred out ideas to each other. And um, some of us came up with unique ideas. Like um, one of the ideas that I gave was like an idea called Gem, where everything would be um, explaining that each minority would would represent how a piece of coal would turn into a gem, such as a diamond, and saying that. Everybody thinks that we're just this ordinary thing, that we're this thing that's not that special. But then if you put us under all this pressure and all this um, gaslighting and undermining, then we're going to end up prospering over it. So that was one idea. But then some other person had came up with, with the idea of Class of I think at that point it was Hassan Seabree and um, Jade Atkins. So that idea stuck because it's, it um, gave the most interest the the magazine that we've been working on is just, it's really been like a creative effort between the students and the staff. And you just, you just get to notice how much these students in our school are really taking into this magazine, whether it's the editorial staff, which I'm a part of that's doing a lot of amazing work and putting so much hard work into doing all these um, illustrations and these graphics and getting all the, and getting all the stories together and putting them in such perfect order and reaching out to companies, reaching out to different chefs and making sure we include everybody that can be highlighted as a person of color that is not taken up in the industry just because of their race and because of their background. And people perceive us as second class citizens, when that shouldn't be the case, everybody should be treated the same And so the magazine
5: is like, it's all, you're all juniors, right? Who are working on it? Yeah. And did you know at the beginning when you were doing this project that like it would be a food magazine? Or how did you decide that it would be like a food magazine instead of a different type of content?
2: Well, we all knew at the beginning that we were going to be interviewing some chefs, but we didn't know exactly to what degree the magazine was going to cover. Like, we didn't, like, we knew that it was going to be about the food industry and, focusing more on minorities and people of color. But we didn't know at the time how much different things we were going to put into
0: it. I asked Michael what the process was like for him and other food and finance students, what they learned about creating food media from scratch. They also had the chance to work with the staff of Cherry Bomb, the magazine and podcast outlet that celebrates women in food.
2: Yeah, actually I did because I didn't realize how much teamwork and communication was involved in it because every single story and every single page has to get approved or some type of compromise or negotiation with another person, whether they're writing from that article or they're just illustrating or making the format. Everybody has to work together to get to that point, to get to a finished product.
5: Are there like particular stories in there or particular interviews that you're most excited
2: about? Yeah, there is. There's a lot of interviews, especially from the featured chefs that we have. Um, a whole bunch of them, like JJ Johnson, Lazarus, like everybody, just has like a very unique story and a very unique background and style of cooking that they want to share with, with the world.
5: How do you sort of hope the food media industry will change, like as your generation starts to, you know, graduate and move into the careers?
2: Well, there's already been a noticeable change between people from the 90s and the 80s, like even stories that my mom and my dad have told me about how little options there were. And like you had to decide during college or right before college what you wanted to do. And even then you weren't sure because there wasn't many programs or people to help you figure that out. And so now you're seeing a lot of change because there's so much happening within communities like libraries and community centers and all these different places and programs. And there's also classes in high schools now and there's specialized high schools where you can focus on something that you're interested in and want to pursue in life. So there's more people now than ever that know what they want. They know what college they want to go to, they know what career they want to partake in and how they want to influence the world.
5: What do you think you want to do professionally? Do you wanna be a do you want to work in food media? Do you want to be a chef? Well, I know for certain
2: I wanna open a restaurant in the upcoming years and I want to be a part of growing up in the industry and working up to be like a line cook and then being a waiter because I also love hospitality and I love um, getting to interact with people. So that's also a thing I'll be excited
5: to pursue. Do you have a message for other young people who might be interested? Obviously you like go to food and finance high, so you have like great exposure to chefs who are your teachers and like you're sort of immersed in the culinary world but what about other young people who might be interested in working in the food industry what's your message to them
2: well definitely for middle schoolers if you if you know that that you can get to a point where you can have like a decent academic background where you can look through colleges and see what you want to do or aren't interested in and it's okay if you're not because you can just kind of take your time to pinpoint out what is the best for you. And while you're in high school, then that's your chance to look at different programs, even in high school, to see if they have clubs or um, classes that pertain to what you want to do in life, and get into a college that, that was going to benefit you the most and push you into going growing up to be the best you can. Do,
5: do you think that past the spatula will continue past this issue?
2: That's what we're hoping on because we definitely had discussions on past the spatula being like an issue name because we wanted, uh, we wanted something that we created to move on to the next classes. And then so they can mention us every single like issue as the first class. So past the spatula would be the name of all the issues. And then each issue would have its um, sub name. So our sub name would was potluck, potluck, person of color, luck. So that's something that we wanted to add to the upcoming graduation year.
0: That's my conversation with Michael Stanton, who worked on the first issue of Pass the Spatula, the magazine highlighting trailblazing chefs of color produced by students at Food and Finance High. You can find links to buy a copy of Pass the Spatula or a copy of Haley Thomas's Living Lively, as well as more information about all of today's guests on saltandspine.com. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned as we resume our weekly interviews with your favorite cookbook authors. And remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Of course, you can also join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Madeline Forbes. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch salt and spine is typically recorded at the civic kitchen in san francisco's mission district the civic kitchen now offers digital cooking classes find out more at CivicKitchensf.com. of course you can also sign up for our virtual dinner party with Sonoko sakai in partnership with the civic kitchen thanks as always to jen nurse chris bonomo and the civic kitchen team to edible san francisco and to celia sack at omnivore books we'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
3: Every weekday, I cover a bunch of stuff. Policies, social issues, news of the day, things you actually give a damn about, all right? But if you're listening to the podcast on the Facebook platform, I need you to make a switch, all right? Because that feature is going away on June 3rd, all right? June 3rd, that feature will go away. So I need you to jump on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcast to make sure that I can still keep bringing you this indisputable content. All right, let's make it happen. Don't miss an episode of
0: Indisputable. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.